Hello there, folks, and welcome to Christ in Every Word, a podcast of the Concordia Bible Institute, housed by the beautiful campus of Concordia University, Wisconsin. This is your opportunity to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the sacred scriptures with me, Dr. Brian German, Associate Professor of Theology here at the University and the Director of the Concordia Bible Institute. We are making our way to the book of Genesis. How about that? Chapter 24 is on the docket today. What a doozy. I don't know how best to account for why it's so long and seemingly repetitive. I guess there are parts of it that seem, okay, we kind of, why we have all these details given again and so on. In some ways, Genesis chapter 24, it's kind of like John chapter 9, or you get these real long accounts in the Gospel of John, healing of the man born blind. It's like 41 verses. And you run that miracle in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and it's like five. And uh, to some extent, that's just, I mean, the gospel writers are doing what they're doing. They have their their theological emphases they want to point out. Um, in Genesis, why is it that you get some narratives that are so long and some that are that are pretty concise? Melchizedek, four verses, are you kidding me? Uh, and then here we have what? I mean, 62 to to get Isaac and Rebecca married here. That's, I mean, on the one hand, it is, um, it is a marvelous unfolding of God's work with his special people as this happens. Some places in Genesis are very terse and concise. The spirit was hovering over the waters. I mean, that's, I mean, that's a, a volume in and of itself. And then others um, loaded with details. Here, chapter 24, uh, the servants and the camels and the jug and the water and the spring. And, you know, the kind of some of this is repetitive and so on. Um, This is partly how the Bible kind of there are places where the Bible sort of is, is just evocative. It invites you to reflect. The spirit is hovering over the waters. Now, just think about the association between the Spirit and the water, and that's what you have to know. But yes, but we have 12 other questions. The point is the Spirit's with the water, closely associated with the water, working with the water, in, with, and under the water, hovering over in Genesis 1, chapter 2. There are other places where you get a lot of repeated details. Um, the, the, uh, the sheep and the camel and the jar of water here in chapter 24, the spring of water and the drinking and the camels and the you know the speaking and the Rebecca and and all of this is is um, is also very much important when the Bible places your your focus on details that are repeated, details that kind of form a framework around maybe the main thing here, the fact that this marriage is taking place, uh, details you focus on even when there's hesitancy to to go with Jacob at first. We'll see this. Excuse me, the servant. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, so this is, I mean, and the other thing too with Genesis and how these narratives kind of unfold is you get a, a kind of dying and rising. We saw this chapter 22, Isaac is about to be killed. He's not though. Um, and then chapter 23, Sarah dies. And yet, um, in chapter 24, Abe is in old age and yet there's new life. There's new marriage, and from that marriage will come new life. And well, the last verse of the chapter is that, is that Isaac is comforted 
after this, the death of Sarah because of this marriage. And so there is a constant dying and rising, which is totally Christianity. The Lord, um, through his son, conforms us to this cruciform image of dying and rising. It's a baptismal image. That's not just something that we we make up because it sounds good. It's ingrained in the unfolding of the scriptures themselves. You just read these narratives, these chapters in Genesis, you're going to see dying and rising all over the place. This is a very baptismal book. That right when you see this dying, it's in the midst of this dying is this new rising, this new life. And that theme is going to continue. Joseph has its own way of doing that, right? He's thrown into the pit and he comes out of the pit and he's down in Egypt. He's out, he'll be out of Egypt. And this up and down and dying and rising takes on many different expressions. But you get that here. You get that here as well. It's a long chapter. I'll just kind of uh, hit some of the highlights here. I guess the first thing, again, Abe is old now, well advanced in years. Usually we get a set age for him, but I think the point here is, is, is that, yeah, close to death. Old, well advanced in years. He has been blessed in all things. He says to his servant, the oldest of his household, I like this. Why not give us a name? And is this Eleazar? And who is this? We don't know, but I I like the fact that as Abe dies, he says to the oldest of his household, Luther makes a big deal of Abe having a kind of household church. Abe is the bishop. There's something very ministerial here about oldest of the household. You're, this is like the laying on of hands almost. Um, keep the marriage clean, would you? And marriage in Genesis has always been a very special sanctified thing. It's instituted, of course, in Eden, man leaving his father and mother, one wife and so on. But as you get farther in Genesis, the chapter 6, people marrying and being given in marriage for the days of Noah and, and all of that, the violence that comes from that, you get the sense that marriage is not just, is not just a thing of, of these earthly unions, but there's also something spiritual going on there as well. That... Uh, that uh, the 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 worst kind of violence there, just thinking of chapter six, is the kind of spiritual infidelity of God's people throughout all times and places. This is why the prophets speak the way that they do. Watch out! Don't go whoring after other gods. Some of the translations, you know, put it various ways, but that's the word. Um, because um, because of these the idols thereof and so on, you're. You're running after another woman. The book of Proverbs comes to mind. You see their lady wisdom or lady folly um, so often. I mean, and that's what, what you're going to see here, this make sure you find a wife uh, not from the daughters of the Canaanites. Well, is this just like, oh, man, you're just so worried about this ethnicity thing. It's not primarily that. It's primarily what that does spiritually. And so, of course, it's a warning also to Christians considering spouses like, this is a big deal. That's that's the most intimate bond we have here. There's no relationship like the one flesh union, and when that is uh, spiritually amok, that's gonna ha- that's gonna profoundly influence. If you, for example, want to take a spouse who believes differently about the Christian faith, I mean, that's you have to sort that out, and um, and then there are warnings also, and you think of First Corinthians seven about the unbelieving spouse and what that what that might look like. So it's a big deal here in Genesis. It's something to that is throughout the Bible, this watch out for the spiritual infidelity. So it's like Abe has his household church. He's passing on the 
I don't know, the, the preaching of stay true to the, the spiritual spouse of our Lord. I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Put your hand under my thigh. I love this because uh, it's kind of weird. And that is, whoa, put your hand under my thigh. I mean, you've ever thought about this? And the Hebrew is kind of, it's kind of graphic. It's uh, probably a Title IX, uh, you know, infraction or whatever these days. But the thing is, it's, uh, in a manner of speaking, close to the place of life, the place of procreation. And that's consistent with Genesis because we're looking forward to that descendant, the one who is to crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. And so everything that you do in the church, everything that these people are doing here, this put your hand under my thigh, even as odd as it sounds, it revolves around the faith that they confess. So whatever you're doing, and this goes for the Christian church of all times and places, whatever you're doing, what does it have to do with the person and work of our Savior? Put your hand under my thigh. Swear that you get uh, a not from the a wife for my son, not from the daughter of the Canaanites, but from a wife of my own kindred. Okay, and now the servant then can confesses or wonders, you know, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then um, take your son back to the land from which you came? Abe says, see that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you. And you shall take a wife from my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you'll be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Do you see what's most important here? Isaac, my son, will not go back there. The Lord's promises will be fulfilled. This To go back there would be like to return to Egypt. You know, the people in the wilderness... Oh, that we were back in Egypt where we had meat pots to the full and all this sort of stuff. Do not return, to put this graphically, to uh, like a dog returning to its own vomit. I mean, that's, I know, a little crude, but that's that's St. Paul for you. Uh, But this is the nature of sin. This is the nature of the pilgrimage of this life. And this is big for Genesis. This is big for the Bible. God's people are on this pilgrimage. They live by God's promise. And the temptation is also, you know, maybe maybe this isn't going to work out according to our plan. Should we return then back to Egypt? Should we, you know, if things don't go according to our expectations with this whole God's promises of being with you and blessing you stuff, should we then, I don't know, take refuge in our old manner of life? To think of Ephesians 4 here, our old self, the old habits, the old addictions, the old the old me, the old Adam. Perhaps that would be the other way to go about. And Abe says, no, don't go back there. Cling to the word. And that's why he even quotes Yahweh. He quotes this promise that he's spent his whole life under, not his whole life, right? A good chunk of his life, most of his life, this to your offspring, I'll give this land. So he instructs The future ministry, I would say, these servants are kind of fascinating in Genesis, aren't they? The servants with the the near sacrifice of Isaac and so on. 
stake your life on this promise. To your offspring I'll give this land. Um, cling to the word even when all appearances to the con- are to the contrary. When you look at your own life and think, man, the Lord's promised to be with me until the end of the age. And look at this. To your offspring I will give this land. That's the word I've been clinging to. And Genesis is big on this clinging to the word in all things. Lots more to say here, and uh, I, wow, what are we going to do in the second half of this? I'm not sure, but stay tuned. We'll do uh, some of the big highlights here of Genesis chapter 24 in just a moment. We'll be back in just a moment to the Concordia Bible Institute podcast. In the meantime, I'd like to have you consider this question. What is most important in higher education? How do you prioritize all the knowledge to be gained at an institution of higher learning? Concordia University, Wisconsin, located on the shores of Lake Michigan in Mequon, Wisconsin, just north of Milwaukee, is an institution that is committed to excellence in learning, but at the same time realizes that excellence in itself is insufficient without development in vocation. We believe that God works through our vocations, our callings, in order to serve the needs of those around us. The mission statement of Concordia University puts it this way, Concordia University, Wisconsin, is a Lutheran higher education community committed to helping students develop in mind, body, and spirit for service to Christ in the church and the world. You can learn more about the over 70 programs offered at Concordia by visiting the website, www.cuw.edu. And if you're benefiting from our Christ in Every Word podcasts, I encourage you to support this ministry by mentioning it to others and by offering your monetary support. Please consider supporting the Concordia Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org and clicking on the contribute page. And now, back to the podcast. Alrighty there, folks. We are back with our study of Genesis chapter 4. At this rate, we'll be done in about three and a half hours. Just kidding, I'll get uh, <laughs> some highlights here, like I said, and we'll go from there. It's a fascinating, I mean, the length of the chapter I kind of brought up earlier. I guess the other thing about this chapter is you don't have any big flash and song and dance. Um, Genesis, yeah, chapter 1, creation, and you have the flood, of course, chapter 6 to 9. You have Tower of Babel. These are like cosmic worldwide events, huge stuff. The Lord is coming down from heaven to see what's going on, and yikes. And then, you know, Genesis chapter 24, what do you have here? I mean, where's the Lord in all of this? Of course, the Lord is there, orchestrating these events, providentially overseeing to make sure this goes according to his goodwill and pleasure. Of course, he's there, and you know that. You get a sense of that because the Lord is on the lips of these people, but you don't have these big bad moments of the Lord rending the heavens and uh, you know, asunder and coming down and you know fire and brimstone like Sodom and Gomorrah. You don't have any of that. What you have is, I mean, there's a little, there's a prayer, there's a prayer. There's the Lord is on the lips of these people one to another. Does that sound familiar? Christian conversation, Christian prayer talking about the Lord one to another, but there's no huge song and dance here. And yet the Lord is active and involved all the same. And that, of course, goes for your life as well when you're, you know, the big bad moments of, 
I don't know, I got a new job and I'm, I'm so blessed by the Lord and what a huge moment and this is just life changing and oh my. And then the next day is what? Tough day with the, with the kiddos, tough day at work, tough day, normal day. Nothing really, I mean, vanity of vanities. Does any of this mean anything? We're going, we're getting up, we're going to work again. Is that all it is, right? And uh, and yet in the Lord your labor is never in vain. And uh, so also in 24, the Lord is totally involved. But not every day is the same. Not every narrative, not every chapter. I mean, this is just true to life, this Genesis stuff. The location. Maybe lots to talk about, I guess. But the location. The servant takes the camels and, and uh, sets out. And he has this prayer. Let the woman... To whom I shall say, let down your jar that I may drink. Now, this is a fascinating little, you know, this will be the sign. Jar and drinking, water and drinking. That's the sign of the steadfast love. Of all the things you could do, let the one with the brown hair be the one. I mean, oh, no, not specifically. Let the one with the brown hair whose name starts with an R. That'll be the one, you know. Let the name with the brown hair, the one who starts with R and rhymes with uh, Mabeka. <laughs> I don't know. But the sign is all about the things of the Lord, the means of the Lord, the well, the water. We saw this with Abimelech. Of all the things to fight over, the stuff of the church, the things of the church, the means of salvation, the place of life, the marks of the church, the marks of the Lord's means whereby he comes to his people, hands off, Abimelech. Uh, Not even the gates of hell will prevail against that. And so here we have this marriage arrangement. What is it? Uh, Rebecca is totally the church. This is the marriage that exists in the church of all times and places. Good marriages happening at the well. The marriage between God and his people happening at the well, the waters of baptism. This one was born there, Psalm 87 says. This one was born there. This one was born there. This one is in the marriage between the lamb uh, and his bride that has no end, the book of Revelation. So Isaac and Rebekah are getting married, as it were. This whole thing goes down at a well. This is our Lord himself, woman at the where? Woman on the edge of the cliff who's had a tough life. Woman at the well in John 4. And it's Jacob's well, this Genesis well. You get married. Why is our Lord talking to this woman at the well who's had all these other husbands, right? You've had five husbands. You've had all kinds of different husbands. But the marriage that I invite you to, the marriage that that can be received graciously by faith, uh, by my body and blood, the one flesh union, the fleshly union that is available in Christ, uh, this is the marriage that matters. And so um, in the Christian faith, of course, we we revolve around the promises, the person working Christ. Think again of the place your hand under my thigh, but also this, the means of grace, the water, the word, the sacraments. This is what what our marriage with our Lord revolves around. And so also by extension, Christian marriage, this is going to be, of of course, important. Um, 
when Ecclesiastes talks about that threefold cord that is not quickly broken, in what way or ways is your Christian marriage revolving around the marks of our Lord, the marks of the church, the means of grace, the water and the word? So much of this business of what is Christian marriage all about, I mean, this is all right here. This whole ordeal revolves around the drinking and the well and the water. This is central in our life. It's central in our life with Christ, our bridegroom. It's central in Christian marriage. It's central in Christian uh, brotherhood, brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what we all revolve around. So that's also why she's very attractive, young, uh, let's see, young woman, very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man has known. I mean, this is exactly the counterpart to the woman at the well in John 4. You've had a bunch of different husbands. Here's this, the, the pure wife that our Lord presents uh, to his heavenly father without stain or wrinkle or any such blemish, Ephesians 5 language. You know, you've heard this at weddings, right? That's why Rebecca here is totally the church. She looks like this is what 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 happens. No matter how many false idols, false husbands, very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. I will put away those false marriages uh, as far as the east is from the rest. I will remember your adultery, spiritual adultery, no more. Without spot, without wrinkle, without stain or any blemish. That's how I see you. That's how my son, um, great Abraham's greater son, you might say, to pick up some uh, the language of the of the hymn there. Hail to our Lord's anointed, great David's greater son, great Abraham's greater son, uh, has presented you as that pure bride of revelation we talked about, and so Rebecca um, is the one who's speaking this, revolving around this. Uh, she says drink, right? That's the key word. And uh, she also says, I'll draw water, right? I'll be connected to the water. And then the camels need to be finished drinking. So she emptied the jar into the trough and she runs. Who runs in the Bible? I mean, yikes. Um, the urgency to be around the things of the Lord runs to the well to draw water. Like women run, running to the tomb, you know, the father running to his prodigal son. She draws for all the camels. And the man just gazes at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prosper his journey or not. He just focuses. Keep your eyes fixed, <laughs> O servant, on the things of the Lord. And uh, marvel at how he provides for his church, the Christian church. Christ and his bridegroom. Christ and his bride. Uh, throughout the ages. So the rest of this chapter, boy, um, Brother Laban gets involved here. Maybe some of you know this. Um, this will have to be recounted. And I love this because he recounts exactly the word that Bishop Abraham gave to him. Again, there's kind of an ordination sort of thing going on where it's, I remembered my vows. It's not, it's just not, it's not just a significance that you have this, the swearing, you have oldest of the household, Abraham, the bishop, giving a word, quoting the Lord's promises. And then you have this servant recalling ordination vows. I swore this. I vowed this. The promise of our Lord is this. He clings to that. He re re rehearses this. Then 
This is the strongest witness, by the way, um, of the ministry, the vows taken and the clinging to the word to one another. So Laban hears all this. I've got to, you know, why not, as a reader, you might think this is a little laborious here. This is kind of, okay, why do we have to recount? So the Bible can be so quick in other places, and yet we've got to rehearse all this. Yeah. Uh, it's why you put Luther's sacristy prayer up before you go out and, and preach. It's it's a constant reminder of the of the vows. I mean, what, would that we would put, you know put the confirmation vows. You promise to forsake all, even um, even death, rather than than lose or wander away from this faith. Then answer, I do. And so we should rehearse these things. And so it's rehearsed in its own way here. And Laban basically, I mean, eventually says, um, it's from the Lord. You know, what, what, what can I do? You know, if you look in verse 50, 51, um, as the Lord has spoken, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you good or bad. The Lord's will be done. I mean, it's almost an order of service here. This, the Lord's prayer and so on. Um, the Lord's word has brought this about. I mean, as before, (laughs) As he had before, he had finished speaking, or as I had finished speaking in my heart, you know, this kind of the word is carrying forth this marriage, bringing it about, calling things into existence that which did not exist before creation, knowing that he would bring about this marriage between Christ and his church. And so he bows himself there toward the end. You notice also just a little bit of hesitancy, don't you? Um, there toward the end, they said, it's kind of an interesting little, little exchange there. Send me away. And her brother and her mother both say, yet the young, let the young woman remain with us a little while, at least 10 days after that, she may go. And he says, don't delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They say, then let, let us call the young woman and ask her. They call Rebecca and, will you go with this man? She says, I will go. So then they send her away. That's kind of an interesting little moment there. There is a kind of resistance. I think the point is there's slight resistance sometimes to this um, courtship, as it were, this marriage that our Lord is bringing about. The the people surrounding the church, um, those who are hearing about the church, they might not always... Uh, there might be different uh, extents or degrees of hesitancy there. Um, you know, I just think of some of my own, uh, I attend a local church here, and you're doing a service project, two people from the neighborhood walk by, and they want to know what's going on there. <laughs> and uh, before you know it, we've got baptisms and so on. On the other hand, you've got people, uh, family members, of these church members who maybe are well aware of what's going on there for decades and have stayed away and yet have kind of found their way or inquired or, you know, so there is a, there is, there are varying degrees here of reluctance to uh, building up this particular marriage or joining in condoning it and so on. And uh, you get this, you get a sense of this here at the end. And yet our Lord's word prevails. It's still accomplished, whether it's the, you know, the church cleanup and, you know, the interest there in baptisms two seconds later, seemingly, or the, the longer 
the Lord's word goes forth and accomplishes all the things for which he sends it, either way, he will bring it about. And so they sing about Rebecca, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. I love this language because, I mean, as much as it sounds a little odd, possessing and hate and all this, this is a language that's used at the end of the sacrifice of Isaac. It's a confession that what happens here with Rebecca fulfills the promise of what is to come. This marriage is not just a cute ancient Near Eastern story. What's happening is our Lord's providential outworking of making sure that promise is fulfilled. He's grafting in Rebecca in a way that uh, will bring about that promise. Offspring, possessing the gate of those who hate him. What do you know about Rebecca? Do you know she's, what if she's barren too? How's that going to work? You know, they're not even, the Lord will work through her uh, ultimately to fulfill the promises about that seed to come. And so Rebecca and her young women arise and, and ride on the camels, follow the man, Sounds almost like Matthew 25, the the virgins, uh, the bridegroom is coming. Isaac sees his bride. And uh, this is a kind of an interesting little point here at the end. And uh, she's veiled. The servant tells Isaac. Isaac brings her in. She becomes his wife. It's after that that the love is mentioned. And I want to make a point of that here as we conclude, because it's not, you know, if I just, if I work harder and I I get loved where it should be, then we can have marriage. This is the opposite, that the marriage that takes place here is, uh, is established and the love then flows from that. There's something even more important that, you know, if I just worked at my love better than, you know, the, the love toward wife, um, then the marriage would be better or whatever. I think that's kind of the typical way of thinking things through. But this is, I mean, it reminds me of Bonhoeffer. It's not the love that sustains the marriage, but the marriage that sustains the love. And so you get the reference to that. There's a greater marriage that exists here and the love will flow from that. The love gets, is, is, is rooted in that estate of marriage. This is huge in the Song of Songs as well. The, the love that's there in the Song of Songs between Solomon and his bride is an estate. It's an institution. Uh, it's not primarily emotion and so on. It's love that flows from a vow. It flows from uh, a confession. It flows from this marriage. And so that's the love that flows uh, forth toward Rebecca from Isaac. And then Isaac is comforted after his mother's death, talked about that uh, life in the midst of death as a theme in Genesis earlier. Hey, we are out of time. We better call it there. Thanks for tuning in. Spread the word. We'll tackle 25 next time. The mission of the Concordia Bible Institute is to provide Christ-centered Bible instruction from distinguished experts who teach Christ in every word of the Old and New Testaments to strengthen faith and spread belief in the one true God. Again, if you benefit from this Christ's Centered Podcast, I encourage you to consider going to our website and uh, contributing there at concordiabible.org. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Dr. Brian German, wishing you all God's blessings in Christ Jesus our Lord. 